This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor here. And today I have a very energetic (laughs) co-host. It's true. Well, I had a three-day weekend, so I'm pumped, and I'm talking. We're talking with one of my favorite people in the world, so I'm pumped. Oh, so who is it? Oh, it by is- the way, you didn't introduce yourself. Oh, my name is Mark Galley. I'm the editor in chief of Christianity Today. All right. So who's your favorite person? And in the I'm world? pumped to have Bob Roberts on the show today. Bob is the founding pastor of the Northwood Church in Keller, Texas. Author of books on church planting and discipleship, but his most recent book is Lessons from the East: Finding the Future of Western Christianity in the Global Church. And one of the many things that impresses me about Bob over the years is that he has worked extensively in his home state of Texas all across the U.S., but also especially in the Middle East with Muslims and many multi-faith programs, and he is a perfect person to talk about what we want to talk about today. Hey, Bob. Hey, guys. I'm excited to be with y'all. Thanks for having me. All right. Before we start, I just want to know, how long have you and Mark been friends? Oh, I, uh, I wouldn't say we're friends. No. No, just kidding. I, not, not, I think it was uh, Vietnam. You went with Vietnam and you weren't energetic because I remember you were with CT sleeping in some interviews we were at and I was just broken. No, that is a lie. If no, you, it's not. You can't true. tell that said, in front of God I, and everybody. I'll God, tell you about what you did what, at that one dinner that the lady chairman. Okay, let's move along. Let's move along. What did you want to ask me? <laughs> yeah. what, wait, when was Vietnam though? Yeah, I went on a trip with Bob uh, to Vietnam. Uh, His church has some incredible ministries going on there, and we were able to visit many of them and visit some of the churches in the hinterland and see how the Christians are doing there. It was quite an extraordinary experience. I'll be honest, when he said Vietnam, I literally was like, now don't go talking about the war. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) cool, let's get into our discussion. So last Saturday, a man began screaming anti-Muslim insults at two teenage girls while they rode Portland's public transit. Several men intervened in the tirade, and it cost two of them their lives. The verbal assault against the girls and the subsequent violence, admittedly by a white supremacist, has again surfaced the tension that exists between many North Americans and their Muslim neighbors. Some of this is due to other news stories, like last week's incident in which a British Muslim blew himself up outside of an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, which killed more than 20 people, many of them teenagers and children. A lot of this tension that often emerges when people are trying to understand others from different religions and cultures. Today on Quick to Listen, we'll kind of go over and think about how Christians can react to these conflicting stories about Muslims. And more importantly, what does it look like for North American Christians to love their Muslim neighbors in times like these? Before we get into this main discussion, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible thanks to subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. And you can order it and become a subscriber by going to orderct.com, and that often enables you to get a download of Mark's, mine, and our other podcast host, Richard Clark's favorite stories from CT, Um, and you can get that basically as a bonus 
download for your subscription. We are in the process of our news cycle, as we've been talking about the past couple weeks, for July and August. And our June issue came out. And I do want to just plug the June issue really quickly and say that there's a lot of fascinating coverage about Cambodia and sex trafficking there. I know that's something that, that was talked about a lot at the college campus that I went to. And I would I would imagine that many of our listeners are also familiar with sex trafficking. And so there's some interesting stuff about what IJM and other groups that are fighting sex trafficking, specifically when it comes to minors in these countries are doing. Yes. No, this is a very good piece. Kate Shelnut is uh, on staff here. She's an excellent reporter and a writer, and she just did a great job of just helping helping us get a glimpse of the challenges of sex trafficking in Cambodia, but also the way in which the church and other organizations like IJM are making a dent in that, a significant dent. And we actually have three different pieces about Cambodia that are up. So some of them talk about sex trafficking, and other ones are talking about what the church has been up to. We're several decades removed from this very devastating genocide that occurred in the country. And there's some really, really positive things that the church has been able to accomplish since then. So yes, I'm plugging the June issue because I think it's worth your time. And you can read all of those online with your CT subscription account. And again, you will be able to subscribe to our publication by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. So thank you everyone who has done that. All right. So Mark, I want to just, you know, ask you for a gut check of this attack that happened in Portland um, and kind of how you reacted to that and how that made you feel. Well, naturally, it was uh, extremely disheartening to hear that this sort of thing is going on still in America, uh, but it is. And I just, I, didn't, I haven't seen any footage from it, but I just have a, you know, a mental picture of these uh, two teenage girls, probably in head covering, uh, being verbally assaulted by this man and... Um, just makes me sad. Yeah. So one of them was wearing a hijab and the other one was not. So one of the people that died was this father of four who was a veteran. And the other one that died was a recent college graduate. I will say as someone who has taken public transit a ton, I was just so thankful that people intervened. Sometimes when you're on public transit, you just kind of ignore what people are doing, even if they're being, especially, I guess, almost especially if they're loud. Um, Maybe not necessarily if they're picking on people, but, you know, someone who lived in New York for a couple of years, you're kind of used to a threshold of just like of loudness and distraction and things that are going on and you kind of just don't pay attention to it. And it can also be tempting to just kind of like look the other way when someone's doing something. And the fact that these people decided that they they weren't okay with, with, with what this guy was doing and that he was bullying other passengers made me feel hopeful, I guess. And then there's just this awful tragic twist in which you know he attacked and killed two of them um and just to know that one of them was a father of four made me pretty sad and um this other guy who was younger than both of my sisters in addition to this other um, man that was wounded as well yeah i just felt really upsetting all right bob we have so many questions that we want to ask you as mark mentioned you have lots of relationships with muslims here in this country and around the world so my first question for you are what are the main things north american christians don't understand about muslim communities in north america i'd say the first thing that they don't understand is most muslims have come to america uh, because they they want to be a part of america and American values and what America stands for. A lot of people have the idea that Muslims want to come here uh, to convert America, and and that's why they're immigrating. And no, they want to see their faith spread like Christians want to see their faith spread. Uh, the, the reality is, uh, as one of the top Muslim leaders in America told me, I left the Middle East because I wanted my daughters raised in a country where they could get an education, where they could be have a job, 
where they could experience freedom in ways that they couldn't in the Middle East. So I would say the first thing that most Americans don't understand is that Muslims are not coming here to take over. They're coming here to experience the American life. The majority of Muslims that are here are extremely educated. Uh, They're fairly wealthy. They're very successful. It's not necessarily the same people uh, that you see blowing themselves up around the world. And yes, There are educated Muslims that do that, but by far and large, that doesn't represent the majority of them. So I think that's one big factor. I think another thing is that uh, Muslims are conservative. It is true that uh, the majority of Muslims uh, voted on the Democratic ticket, but the reality is, historically, uh, they have been Republicans. Um, morally, they would identify with evangelical Christians more than liberals or mainline. And uh, the only thing that's, that's frankly pushed them into the Democratic camp Uh, has been some of the hate rhetoric against Muslims and and so forth. They're moral. They don't want to take over America. And when you hear the word Sharia, it isn't just talking about the Huda part of Sharia, which is the extreme uh, penal code of Sharia. It's about prayer. It's about how they eat food, how they do marriage, how they conduct themselves in business. So the truth of the matter is the things that uh, most Americans would fear about extreme Islam, they came here to get away from as well. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, at least in my brief encounters. I remember, I think we went to a conference in Doha together a few years ago, and uh, Dahlia Mogahed was there, and she was, uh, after a session, was talking vociferously about some of the, the secularization that's going on in America and how, how it denies people religious freedom left and right. And I'm thinking, this woman, this is, this woman's an ally. She's an ally for us in terms of her moral values, her religious values. And I'm just, uh, I would like to see Christians uh, take a second look at it. They are definitely allies in a lot of our cultural battles that we're facing in terms of sexuality and morality. They're, they're going to be on our team on this. The conservative piece is also really interesting. I had just read an op-ed a couple weeks ago that said, or the headline was, do Muslims have to be Democrats now? And was essentially saying, like, you know, the people that we would be natural allies to have made it very clear. Many of them have made it very clear they don't want us or don't want us to treat us like allies. But it also feels unnatural to to necessarily ally ourselves with, you know, more progressives at the same time. Yeah, I think it's time for a third political party. Uh, because there's a lot of people that don't really fit totally in either party. But that's probably another podcast. It's well, true. When you run for president, we'll we'll have you back on then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. So some Christians say that Islam is inherently violent and point to Islamic terrorism as proof. How do you reply when Christians ask you about that? It's just not true. There are violent uh, Muslims, and th- there's no doubt about that. And there's a lot of them. There's no doubt about that. Uh, So I wouldn't sit here and say that there are not uh, violent extremist Muslims. Uh, There are. But I would also say that is not the majority of them. Uh, The majority of them want peace. They live for peace. They're here uh, because they want peace. I would say also uh, that looking at terrorism and, and saying that's the way Islam is, is just inaccurate. A lot of people say, you know, there's violent passages in the Quran, and there are. And if you know the history of the Quran and where those uh, violent passages take place, many times that had to do when they were in the middle of wars. So I don't support those violent passages, but if you've ever read the Old Testament, it outdoes the Quran uh, 10 to 1 in terms of violence and and some other things that take place, uh, whether we like that or not. But I would say it's not inherently violent, but an extremist can take a religion, any religion, uh, Christianity included, and find passages and justification for being violent. 
Most Muslims want to be a friend of, of you, not, a, not, not an enemy. What would you say is the best way for Christians to educate themselves about Islam? And I say that because, you know, there are plenty of places that do claim to be, you know, sources that Christians should educate themselves on, whether it's books written by Christian converts from Islam or people who say that they have studied the faith extensively. Are Muslims themselves the best way to get that information? What has been your experience? Well, my experience is don't go to a Christian bookstore and buy books there about uh, what Islam is and what Muslims believe, because the overwhelming majority of books there are, are not necessarily accurate. That They would have some accuracies in them, but it's it's more of a scorched earth policy when it comes to some of those writers. And a lot of times they will state things that are inaccurate or take things out of context. I would say if you want to understand Islam, the first thing you ought to do is be a friend with a Muslim. That's number one. And just ask them, what do you believe and so forth, which means you're going to have to be in relationship. And so the majority of what I've learned from Islam, frankly, has to come from from what they write about Islam. I would say the second thing is read the Quran. Uh, it'll become incredibly obvious uh, what Muslims teach, that they don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, that they don't believe that he was God in the flesh, that they don't believe that he was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I, I'll never forget uh, going into a Christian bookstore one time with a young uh, couple that had just gotten married. They were from Syria. They were friends of mine. So they wanted to understand Christianity. So I took them in a bookstore, and I was buying some books, and there was a section, and it, it said other religions. So they went over real quick. And and they started pulling books off the shelf about what Christians had written about Muslim. And a lot of it was was really just erroneous. They said, Bob, this is true. We do believe this. This is not true. We don't believe that. And so I have found very, very few books Christians have written about Muslims that were that were accurate. Uh, Karen Armstrong would be an exception to that. Uh, John Esposito would be an exception to that. But a lot of times, we have less than scholarly people. They're more emotional, and I understand that. But there write books about Islam that are just erroneous. They're not accurate. So the obvious differences, if you read the Quran and if you read what they write Islam is, will help you understand what they believe. There, there are several simple books that you can go to any secular bookstore to find a beginner's guide to Islam or what does Islam teach and and, and this sort of thing. What is your impression of academic conferences on Islam? My impression has been that sometimes both the Christians and the Muslims that come to s such conferences tend to represent the more liberal and it's very small minority end of the religions. So I feel like when I've walked away from such conferences, sometimes I don't think I really understand Islam as it's, as it's lived out on the ground. I think you're 100% right. And this is one of the problems that I see. Scholars writing books on religion are basically read by by scholars. So here's the challenge that we face. How do we get everyday people to understand what the religions are and, and what they teach? Uh, Mark, you're where I do these things where I get pastors and imams in cities and in geographic localities. We get them together for a three-day retreat. And the whole goal of that is to break down bridges where they can get to know one another because most pastors and imams do not have a relationship with one another, especially evangelical pastors. Mainline liberal pastors, yes, not evangelicals. And the truth of the matter is there's a tremendous amount of suspicion that imams and evangelical pastors have of one another. Well, what is the goal of that? It's really not the pastor and imam. It's to get to the masses the everyday congregants that are part of the mosque and synagogue so they can get to one another and ask questions. So I would say at a very high level, 
a lot of times academics and scholars don't want to offend one another. Uh, for that reason, I hate the word interfaith. I like the word multi-faith. Uh, I hate it when people say, let's see all the things that we have in common so that we can get along. That's baby faith to me. Uh, I think a mature faith says, I can be diametrically opposite from you and still have a relationship with you without having to compromise what I believe about my truth. So I, I would say uh, those academic conferences that you're talking to, Mark, it's good to get to know people, good to build relationships. It's good to learn some things. But the, at the end of the day, it does very little on the ground. The, the impact is marginalized. Yeah, that's been my experience with my—I had more extensive conversations with, with the Jewish community. And I, in fact, I enjoy talking to the Orthodox Jews more than anyone else because they are— very fervent and very conservative in their beliefs, and I get I get a I get a sense for how we really are different, and I'm, I'm able to have a very good relationship with one rabbi in particular, and he was just up up in my office. Uh, we were going back and forth on the relationship of grace and faith and conversion and redemption, and at, at various times we would explain our views, or I would explain my view, and he would just look at me and say, "We really disagree about that." But we were able to do it in a way that maintained the relationship. And I think that would be really helpful to be able to do that with Muslims. I, I love Orthodox Judaism. Uh, they believe the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being candid with you. And, and the Reform will tell you, you know, I have a very good rabbi friend who's Reform. And he says, when I have somebody come in my office and say they've been reading the Bible and they think they want to be a Jew, I, I tell them real quick, we've got a problem because— uh, I don't believe the Bible that you're reading like you believe it at all. So I, I, I the Orthodox do very much. They believe Genesis all the way through, and so you can you can have a real conversation with them about how they believe the scriptures. So how do I get to know my Muslim neighbor or someone in the community? I would say don't start with your head. You know, a lot of people say I've got to first have a conversation. This is who I am. What do I what I believe? Now tell me what you believe. Now if I come to trust you, then may, maybe we can. You know, do something together and then, uh, and then, you know, the hand. So my response is no, start with the hand. In other words, do what Jesus did. He first engaged people. He didn't say, here is the son of God. He, he heals them. He, he serves them. He sweats with them. So start with the hand. It captures the heart. Now you can have those deep head conversations. Confrontational apologetics in the 21st century, uh, there, it's going to be very limited. The idea of I'm right and you're wrong and we're going to stand up and we're debate, I think it's going to come down to relational apologetics. Our ability to be in friendship and relationship. Now I want to ask you a hard question. Uh, th that's how people change. So, Bob, you're talking about the importance of a re relationship. One common theme that I see from a lot of people who may run websites or publish books that are not Muslim but are trying to educate others about Muslim as they talk about how they're exposing the real Islam. I'm just wondering what you would say to the person who says, like, I need to read these books. I need to know what's really going on because how can I trust people to really give me, you know, an accurate picture of what their faith is? You know, probably they're hiding something. Well, I would say look at church history. Think about it. Why did all these people of other religions decide to follow Jesus? Were there all of a sudden a lot of polytheist apologetics? I don't think so. Uh, were there other religious ap apologists? Not necessarily. Not like we think today. What was going on? They were in relationships with people. And the reality is Jesus was changing people's lives so much and so radically that they were accepting Jesus, not because an apologist gave them all the reasons why their religion was right, but because they were having an encounter with Jesus. And he was radically changing their life. So it took a lot of discipleship thereafter because 
It was the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus that they were drawn to, not not all of the minutia of apologetics. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but not nearly as important as we make them. I hate it that we have turned being in relationship with people over their religions. You've got to be an expert if you want to understand how to follow Jesus. Had that been the case, the early church would have never gotten off of its feet. But but it did get off its feet. Why? Because people were living in relationship with them. So so I, I would say trust the Holy Spirit. I, I would say live in the context of that person, naturally uh, sharing your faith. Let, let me give you one example of what that looked like for me personally. An imam I became friends with asked me, he said, uh, hey, Bob, I know you hunt and fish. Would you take me hunting sometimes? And I looked at him and I said, Zia, the way you're dressed right now, if I take you with me through East Texas, uh, hunting, give you a 12 gauge and you're running through the woods yelling Allah Akbar, we're all going to die. But if you're willing to put on a jeans and T-shirt, slick your hair back and talk with a Mexican accent, I'll take you. And so I did. And since that time, I've wound up taking about, I don't know, 15 imams hunting and, and, and so forth. And they go crazy over it. But what that did was it led to deep conversations because we became friends and we could talk. And it's not like Bob doesn't care about us or he's going to get offended. Well, that works two ways. I can pick up the phone and call, hey, I've just heard of this uh, Islamic doctrine. Is this true? What does this teach? Help me understand this. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. What have you said to Christians who, you know, feel afraid of being in relationships with Muslims? You know, they look at what's on the news and they say, this is what, you know, this is what Islam really is. These are who Muslims really are. And these are people that I don't want moving into my community or people I don't want going to my kids' schools. I think we've got a serious media problem for all of our fear that we have of Muslims in America. You know, if you were to ask somebody you know, that watches TV all the time, who's doing all the terrorist acts, who's doing all the mass shootings, you would think it would be a Muslim, but it's not. Over 90% of the mass shootings that have been done are by young white males that are not Muslims. But for whatever reason, because it's another religion and it's outside our country, those are exalted and elevated far above San Bernardino and, and what happened in Orlando and other places. Those things matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what's happened, but it's as if we are oblivious when it's one of our own, like what happened in Portland. We don't remember that. We don't think about that. We don't think about Columbine. We don't think about Denver. We don't think about— City was another example. Yeah. You just go on and on and on. We're very selective in what we're hearing and in what we're seeing. So given what you were saying earlier, you still—you're not interested in having a relationship with Muslims— just to be a nice guy, to be a good neighbor. You also want to be a good neighbor. You want to love them. But it sounds to me like 
you still would like them to meet Jesus. I would, unapologetically. You know, when people talk about Muslims taking over the world, they don't understand what they're saying. So a Muslim wants the people to hear the message of the prophet because they want the message of Islam to spread in the world the same way I, as a Christian, want the whole world to hear about and know Jesus. So I'm always talking about my faith. Uh, I just spoke at the uh, Passion Conference for Muslims. It's called Reviving the Islamic Spirits. But well, You said, I spoke you there. said the Passion Conference for Muslims? <laughs> Yeah, and, and it is. It's the Louis Giglio, and it's a guy named Farhan. And they have 25,000 Muslim young people that come together in Toronto. And so I spoke last year, the day before Christmas, the year before. And so I get up in the pulpit, speaking to all the—I'm the only evangelical speaker there. And I stand up and say, how about that Jesus? Who loves Jesus in the house today? Everybody starts clapping because Muslims love Jesus. And so they're all laughing and going on. And so I stand up and, and I say, that's why I love Muslims, because I know you love Jesus and I love Jesus. And I said, how many of you are excited about the virgin birth? And they're all clapping. How many of you are excited about the model of Jesus, how that he serves everybody? How many? And they're all clapping. How many of you are excited about the miracles that he's done? And they're all clapping. How many of you are excited that he died on the cross for our sins and he's coming back? And there was deathly silence. You did that. I did. And I said, I know you guys think this guy's crazy. What's the deal? Well, the thing is, I really believe he did all that. And that's why I'm here, because I want you to know, contrary to what you may have heard, there are evangelicals just like me that love you with all your heart. You matter to us. And yes, I want to baptize every single one of you. And they exploded with laughter. And I said, I know it's probably not going to happen that much with most of you, but I want you to know that I care about you. And I also want you to know that your religious freedom matters, that I'm going to stand up for you because I want you to stand up for Christians in the Middle East. And they all started clapping and gave me a standing ovation and all of this. No matter where I go, I, I get to speak at some of the largest mosques in the world. I really do. I go after the Friday prayers and I've become friends with some of the imams and they have me speak. So I never deny my faith. I always talk about who Jesus is. But let me say this. There is something that's changed about me, Mark. It happened about 18 months ago. It was that I'm aware of the only gathering where we had 100 evangelical pastors and 100 imams. And we signed a statement. But anyhow, at this event, you know Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, and he's a friend of mine. And so people are coming behind the stage because I'm a part of the program and all these muckety-mucks are, which I'm not. But they, they say there's this prince out here who's looking for one of you. Well, that didn't catch my ear. Finally, they came back. They said there's a Prince Turkey Al-Faisal. He's back here looking for you, Bob. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So I run out and I, I find him. <laughs> and I told him about the event. And he's coming there to honor me. Now, you've got to understand, Saudi Arabia doesn't have the biggest record in terms of religious freedom. So for him to show up in public in support of what I did with, with, with some Muslims and Jews and others, that's a pretty big deal. And yeah. so he asked me, he said, so Bob, where do I sit? <laughs> I grabbed somebody's name tag, threw it on the board. I said, they put you right here beside me, your highness. So we're sitting there. This isn't just any prince. This is uh, uh, one of the top princes in the whole country. Yeah. He was a gentleman I met at one of your conferences. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You spoke with him. So anyhow, I mean, he could wind up being the king for all. His father was the king. He was the head of their 
equivalent of the CIA, ambassador to the U.S., ambassador to England, yada, yada, yada. So anyhow, I'm standing up there and talking. And Mark, while I'm talking, something hit me. And I, and I told him, I said, you know, one of the reasons I started doing all this stuff in America is that prince right there once challenged me, Bob, what are you doing in the States? It's great what you're doing around the world. And I said, well, your highness, that'd be like you starting a Baptist church in Mecca. Wouldn't go over real big. I'm in Dallas, Texas, where the favorite sport of religious pastors is to trash Muslims. And, and I teach our young pastors, never vilify another religion. People do not accept Jesus because you destroy their religion. They accept Jesus because you lift up Jesus. Now, Mark, you ought to tweet that. That's powerful. So <laughs> never, never, never vilify. I'll let, I'll let Morgan do She's a tweeter here. I don't do that sort of thing. Just lift up Jesus. I mean, I mean, that's what happens. The early church, they were following Jesus because, so anyhow, but I'm standing up there and I'm talking. I love Prince Turkey. I knew I loved him, but it hit me something else. And you and I can disagree on this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. I love this man as much as any Christian I know. And all of a sudden, while I'm standing up there talking, I'm having this mental thing that's going on in my head, which is simply this. Do I love Christians one way and non-Christians another? I think only when we love people without reservation is there any hope of us loving them to Jesus and hearing the gospel. And so I want every Muslim that I know to get to hear about Jesus. If they don't, I have failed as a Christian. But if the only reason I love them is to convert them, I don't love like Jesus because Jesus was grieved when the rich young ruler went away and he wouldn't follow him. I think we've got to love without boundaries, if you will. Well, without conditions. Yeah. Love without conditions, yeah. So I want him to come to Jesus, but I'm going to love him if he never does. Well, it sort of sounds like some stuff I've been reading about someone who died while we were yet sinners, uh, things like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So um, it is unnerving to hear you say it like that out loud in front of God and everybody, but I think there's something really truthful there that I might even argue that we should love people who are not in the faith more than people in the faith. We should have more compassion, more sense of grieving, more hope and longing for their conversion to Jesus. I think we ought to view it like our lost kids. Like if you have a son or a daughter, I have an exchange student who lived with us for seven years. I literally, my wife and I, we, we love him like our own son. We were at his wedding and he's had a child. I would do anything to see him come to faith in Christ, except force him. And I think when we look at people and we love them, to the degree that we love somebody in our family who doesn't have Jesus. You're not going to start lo stop loving somebody in your family because they don't have Jesus. Mark, you're right. You're going to love them more. I mean, what did Jesus say? Who are you going to love more? The one who's closest, the one who's farthest, the one who's farthest. Th that's what you're going to throw your energies into. I will say that this love may manifest itself in different ways. We're kind of love can encompass lots of different actions and postures and conversations that you have with people. And so, you know, I do think that we are called to love the body of Christ and that people will also be attracted or repelled from the Christian faith based on how well we do at loving other Christians, which Mark has written about extensively. And that it, it almost that is its own form of witness in many ways. And yes, it is really important. It also speaks volumes when we love people who are not necessarily the people we would think about loving. I think there's just different dynamics of what that love is. And love is almost kind of an incomplete word to encompass all these different ways of being with people or for people. Another uh, thing I like to remind people of, I've seen this in a couple different instances where someone might have political views that seem to be or it seemed to preclude them from reaching out, for example, to Muslims. So I have a woman in my church who, who has very strong feelings about immigration policies and that immigration should be 
severely restricted. Uh, but at the same time, she knows she's a follower of Jesus. She's a Christian, and she has she found that she had a Muslim neighbor. And even though this, in a sense, went against her political views about a certain matter. She took the trouble to reach out to that neighbor, to have her over for tea and coffee, to go visit the local mosque, to talk with the imam. So this reaching out to Muslims in the name of Jesus has nothing to do with our with our politics as such. It can happen independently of it and ought to happen independently of it if we're in fact uh, called by Jesus to do this. I love that. That's beautiful. Uh, Because one of the things that we don't understand is how we're connected. Uh, We look at migration as a horrible thing, but if you study Christianity and its flow, Christianity always grew most when migration took place because it spread the church out. I, I get excited about migration globally and what's taking place because I'm so convinced in the accuracy of our faith, wherever it goes, Christianity does well. And so I'm excited that everybody's getting transplanted everywhere because it gives people an opportunity to get to hear about Jesus that never would. I mean, I'm sure you guys are aware of, you know, the way the church is being revitalized in Western Europe right now as a result of the refugees that that are coming in. And Ed Stetzer's made the statement, uh, your local immigrant is probably a pastor more than he is a, a Muslim terrorist. And I think it's an opportunity for the church to stand on its feet. It also, like your neighbor who's getting to know that Muslim lady, she ought to ask her, what country are you from? Tell me about the Christians in your country. What is it like for them? Uh, Because the world is connected in such a way as we're in relationship, we have a chance to influence. So one of the projects I'm involved in is connecting pastors and imams in America with pastors and imams in Pakistan. Because in America, we're concerned about Christians in Pakistan, and they're concerned about, in Pakistan, they're concerned about Muslims in America. So we built this kind of bilateral relationship where we're watching out for one another. How did you go about building that? A retreat. We got everybody together, and the first day of the retreat, all they did was talk about, why did you become a Muslim or a Christian, and and why did you become a cleric, and, and what's it been like for your family? What was the most spiritual experience you've had? How do you... And then the second day is how do you view one another? How do you view one another's religion? And how do I think you view me and things like that? And then the third day is how do you connect? And so I I would say when you build on those walls and you start hanging out together, uh, one of my best friends is Imam Majid Muhammad. And he's got a one of the largest mosques in America there in Washington, D.C. He prayed at President Trump's interfaith thing. I mean, we have deep conversations, but 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 we're close. And so so constantly he was telling me, you know, I would tell him, Christians, I was concerned about what can you do. So he started talking to me about Central African Republic. He said, Bob, how could you help us with this? And so all the really good stuff in the world happens through personal relationships. I mean, you can go in there as governments and arbitrary means, and you're limited in terms of your effectiveness. But when it's relationships and you trust one another with the relationship I have with him uh, and he has with me, it's a game changer. What type of opportunity does Ramadan, which, as you know, began last week, present for Muslim-Christian relations? Uh, All kind of opportunities. For example, Muslims are encouraged uh, in their faith to invite Christians and people of other religions to the iftar. The iftar is the meal that happens when the sun goes down. So it's an opportunity to get to speak about uh, your faith, for you to hear them about their faith. Here's the problem we Christians have. We want to tell people about our faith, but we don't want to listen to other people explain their faith. And, and, and I think sometimes we have to understand witnessing is listening as much as it is talking, maybe more listening than it is talking. And so there's a tremendous amount of things I've learned about Islam and so forth. 
And so they're going to be going out of their way to reach out to you. CNN just did a really good article last week on how you can be sensitive to your Muslim neighbors and what's going on with Ramadan. You can go back and catch that article. I'd highly recommend it to you. Uh, it just deals with practical things that you can do. But when they, if you're friends with a Muslim, they're going to invite you over for an iftar. So if you're not friends, it's going to be hard to get invited. But it's an incredible opportunity. And iftar is when people, they break the fast, correct? It's yeah. At the end yeah. Of the day. So, so it's not, when we, when we hear 40 day fast, we think it's like Jesus going out in the wilderness and there's nothing. Their fast is more like uh, they can't eat from uh, sunup to sundown. So they don't eat or drink anything in that period, but then they do. So I would I would go with them to those times, but it's an opportunity to talk about your faith. It's an opportunity to hear about their faith. It's an opportunity to build a relationship. In American culture, evangelism is changing. And here's what we did in the past. I gave you the Roman road or the four spiritual laws. I gave you the present uh, presentation. You didn't accept Jesus. Now we're done. Move on to the next person. Uh, that's not the evangelism of the future. You're going to have to be friends with people a long time. You're going to have to walk with them in life. Uh, evangelism is going to be more of a relationship than it is a presentation. You've got to give the presentation. You've got to talk about who Jesus is, like like Muslims do their shahada. But you're not going to do that just by walking up to someone real quick. And and that it's not going to happen. It's going to put you in relationship. I would be interested in knowing what's been the most difficult part of this multi-faith work that you've done and kind of how you've worked through those more painful or frustrating elements. Evangelical Christians, that's the most painful part. It's, it's, it's been tough. Uh, it's been painful. Uh, my son once told me, he said, Dad, when I get discouraged, I just Google your name and see all the things people write about you. And I get excited and encouraged. Uh, my life isn't that bad. But hands down, Muslims, they're grateful when you want a relationship. They feel so isolated. Ed Stetzer did some research in which he found the people with the most negative views of Muslims were evangelicals. And the only group worse than the evangelical Christian is the evangelical pastor. Uh, you know, sadly, you know, one, one evangelical pastor in our area gets up in the pulpit, you know, he has a pretty big audience and he'll yell, you know, Muhammad was a pedophile. Now, boy, that's really going to make Muslims want to follow Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of stupid. It may be good for his politics and that sort of thing, but it's lousy for somebody who, who wants to people to be open about the Jesus of the New Testament. Why do you suppose evangelicals struggle with this so much? I think some evangelicals struggle with it because people live by fear, and it's about power and control, and they're, they're afraid of losing their platform and losing their voice and losing their political voice. And, and so it's easier to whip up support through fear than it is to whip up support from what a vision of the future really could be uh, if we learn to get along in this world. I'm sure you've changed other evangelical pastors' minds on this. So at the first pastor imam retreat we did, uh, you may have heard about a mosque in Phoenix where people went with AR-15s and circled it and you know, with Christian flags and guns and everything else, and the people were afraid. And the next thing you know, there was a church that circled that mosque too deep so that the Muslims could continue and go and pray in their, in their mosque. Well, that pastor and imam had been at our retreat. And so the whole time that's going on, I'm on the phone with them. And how do we respond to this? And what do we do? And, and of course, I, I didn't know what to tell them. We were literally coming up. They were coming up with ideas on the phone. Bob, 
What do you think about this? How do we handle that? It was incredible. So as a result of that, another particular city wanted us to come and have a pastor imam retreat. So we did it. And in this particular city, we had uh, almost 10 pastors and 10 imams. Those 10 pastors alone uh, in their attendance at their churches and membership represented a quarter of a million people uh, that were Christians in that particular city. And except for one, every pastor said, don't share the fact that we were here. We, we don't want it discussed. This is too sensitive. Most pastors are afraid of their own church members over this issue. So we said, all right. And so we took them through the whole retreat process, Morgan. Well, by the end, of one, one of the requirements, if you're going to move forward, is you have to go to one another's home and eat a meal. So by the end of the retreat, every pastor and imam had set up a time to go to one another's home and eat a meal, which was huge. That may not sound like a big deal. Now, this was several months ago. Since that time, every pastor has been to a mosque and every imam has been to one of those churches and introduced by that pastor as an imam that they're a friend of. And nearly every single church gave the pastor a standing ovation for treating that Muslim with a respect. I'm not going to tell you what city. That's up to those pastors and them to share. They've got to figure out how to navigate all of that among their church members and so forth. Here's the thing. I don't change anybody. I get people together and facilitate conversation and relationship, and that changes things. I mean, it's just like we're victims of our own media, our own Christian media. Like I told you, we've got to be careful about a lot of the books that are written because they're just wrong. As a member of the Christian media, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't get mad at me. You're, you're not like some of the media that I have in my mind. But when they go back, Muslims have the same problem. And so what we tell them is, no, don't. Instead, talk to a Christian. Ask a pastor what he believes. And it's just incredible. The differences become clear. But it leads to relationships. It, it leads to friendship. My daughter's friends with all kinds of Muslims. They're friends with an Afghan couple who are refugees, a young husband and a wife. And they're my daughter's age and her husband. They both, a family of three, they both have their first kids. They've become extremely close. That, that's what we're missing today. We let media and CNN and Fox and all these others define our view of the other. And what a horrible thing to do. If somehow we could get beyond Beyond all the media hype. And, and that's why I call on clerics. I think pastors and imams have more influence to change this than anybody else in the whole country. But it's going to take courageous people. I mean, Mark knows the story. We lost hundreds of people from our church. I can give you a real good quick you know, book on how to quit being a mega church real fast. Just invite a bunch of Muslims to your church. I mean, uh, it has a profound impact. But our church is growing again. It's young, it's millennials, and I'm an old dude, and I'm always scratching my hand over that. But they're hungry to engage. Thank you so much, Bob, for sharing all of this. Good food for thought for a lot of us. Great recommendation about churches looking to downsize. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> people who have thoughts and opinions are welcome to share them with us. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. We are now on the type of show we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask people to share with our listeners something that is bringing them joy this week. Bob, be our guest. Yeah, Mark, you go first, Mark. Okay. Well, this last weekend, my wife and I went camping with my daughter, son-in-law, and two grandchildren at the Illinois State Beach State Park. And it was just a delightful time 
to get away, to walk along the water, to build a campfire, and to just bask in the, the family. It was a really nice weekend. Where can people follow you when the show ends? So they can go to ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report, and they can begin receiving, they can re- actually read it right there, but they can also begin receiving a weekly newsletter in which I link to stories I find interesting and make comments about them. So actually, I have a precious moment that's relevant to you. I am planning a Texas trip with my parents in a couple weeks, and I think they're both mad at me because I wanted to go to Texas in July. But we're attempting to go to all four of the major cities, plus two ballparks, and see the sights. I have been to Dallas one time when I was 10, but we're going to do Dallas and San Antonio and Austin and Houston in five days, if that's possible. I think it is possible, and you're going to have fun. And if you want to understand Texas, watch the movie Bernie. It's an incredible movie. You'll laugh your guts out. Good. I appreciate that recommendation. All right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And I am also open to suggestions of things to do. I have a bunch of suggestions for Dallas, but I would love stuff for Houston and San Antonio and Austin. All right, Bob, go ahead. Okay. So here's what I am super excited about. I'm a granddad. I hated it at first, the concept of being granddad. I didn't want to be called granddad. But for the past two days, I had my uh, grandson and my granddaughter Uh, And then today we've got the little baby from my daughter and her husband. And there is nothing like grandkids. I've had so much fun and I just love being with them. I pulled them to the park. I play with them. I love them. Nothing has given me as much joy as being a granddad and hanging out uh, with my grandkids and then being able when the time is up to hand them to my children and say, Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit to identifying with that. (laughs) And you can follow me at Twitter at Bob Roberts JR. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. We thanked our producers, Cray Allred and Richard Clark. As a reminder, if you want to support the show, go to orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen and thank you to everyone who leaves reviews we definitely encourage you to keep doing that as that's a great way to support the show as well we will see you all next week this episode was brought to you in part by the enneagram and marriage podcast an outreach dedicated to bringing joy strength intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.